For March 5th, 2020, it's the Lullabot Podcast. It's the Lullabot Podcast, episode 246. I'm Matt Cleave, a senior developer at Lullabot. With me, as always, co-host of the show, senior front-end developer, Mike Herschel. Hey, Mike. Hey, Matt. Good glad- morning. Good morning. Glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here, too. We're on the Lullabot Podcast. We talk about all things Lullabot. Lullabot's a strategy design development agency. We do work on the web primarily in Drupal, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Drupal. One thing Drupal has been doing for, I don't know, a dozen years or so, has been government stuff, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of uh, federal and state governments using Drupal. And Lullabot has uh, been a part of some projects that have been doing some government stuff using Drupal, right? Yep, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We also have some folks who know some more stuff about doing great (laughs) web projects using Drupal. Correct. So uh, first up, we have Nika Hector, who is the director of web development at DS Federal, which is a government contracting firm specializing in Drupal and other web apps. Uh, She is a board member of Drupal for Gov and co-leads the organizers for Drupal GovCon. You can find her at Nika on Twitter. That's spelled N-N-E-K-A and uh, the same username on Drupal.org. Welcome, Nika. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. Also with us, we have an IT specialist at the EPA, board member of Drupal for Gov, and co-leader and organizer of Drupal GovCon. She's a chief master sergeant in the D.C. Air National Guard. Jess Deary on Twitter and Deary on Drupal.org. Welcome, Jess Deary. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. And we also have a uh, fellow lullabot here. He is a senior technical project manager. Um, he did. He led the team that migrated around 80-ish Georgia.gov websites to Drupal.8. So he's kind of the odd man out being uh, working in the state at the state level right here. You can find him at uh, on Twitter as D says what <laughs> and on Drupal.org. Welcome, Darren Peterson. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm sorry I'm not working on my hourlies or, or my work right now. <laughs> He's my, That's all right. Yeah, Darren is our, both of our project managers currently, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah we're all on the same project, which yeah. is actually kind of fun. <laughs> Slumming over on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, so Drupal in government. Um, so, uh, my experience with uh, Drupal in government has, has been practically nothing. Um but I have attended Drupal GovCon back in 2018, I believe. And since you, uh, since both of uh, Nika and Jess are organizers, like let's maybe start with Drupal for Gov. How is what is Drupal for Gov? How does that relate to Drupal GovCon? And and maybe just give us maybe the overall history of of the organization. Sure. Um, so Drupal for Gov is actually a nonprofit organization that kind of serves as the uh, the group behind all of the events. A lot of people know us for Drupal GovCon. We're um, one of the largest, if not the largest, government tech conferences east of the Mississippi, I heard. Um, and so we have about 900 people come every summer for three full days of sessions and training. We recently added a full day of training uh, right bef- that leads into the conference. Uh, But in addition to Drupal GovCon, we do monthly webinars. We've uh, partnered um, and tried to participate with Drupal Global Training Days that are offered, I think, quarterly now. So we try to get into lots of different spaces and serve those that work in government, whether you're a government employee or simply supporting government work. We face some challenges in getting access to information and training. So we try to kind of fill the gap. And that's kind of what Drupal for Gov does. And Drupal GovCon is just one of the big ways we do that. Just while we're in the beginning of the podcast, uh, Drupal GovCon is coming up in July this year, correct? Yes, July 29th through the 31st. Uh, Jess, you work at the EPA. Does the EPA, I'm assuming the EPA runs Drupal, is that right? We do. So the public website, epa.gov, is currently running Drupal 7 and preparing to move to Drupal 8. I manage a internal Drupal project for the Office of Research and Development. Our internal intranet is actually 
lots of different things, but part of the work that I've been able to do with Drupal has led to a pilot where we are considering uh, testing Drupal as an intranet solution as well that would be agency-wide. So I see a lot of Drupal adoption and people really being sold on Drupal and what it can do compared to some of the other technologies we've explored. Gotcha. Uh, Are there any specific challenges that the EPA faces uh, relative to maybe you would you would guess that other organizations, non-government organizations have? I would say it's not so much uh, specific to, to Drupal necessarily, but I think what we have and what we the challenges that we face is unlike a lot of other uh, commercial industries, we don't necessarily have staff that have all of the different expertise and specializations in, say, UX and content strategy and developers. You know, we sometimes have one or two people that fill all of those roles. And so what Drupal is helpful in is helping to kind of bridge the gap in that it solves some of those things out of the box for you, that the community itself uh, really does come alongside you and help move your projects forward because it can provide some of that support that you may not have locally uh, or internal to your to your agency. I'd say that's one of the big things. Yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense. Um, how long have you, uh, jump back to Drupal for Gov, how long have you been involved with that? I want to say it's, oh my goodness, I think it's coming up on nine years now, maybe even 10. Wow. I started, yeah, I started with Drupal in late 2009, early 2010. Before we had Drupal GovCon, it was it was called global something like Drupal government days, I think is what we called it. And so I got talked into doing a session at one of those one day events. And that's kind of how I got hooked in and decided that what that organization was really doing was really important and that it was really helpful for me on my projects. And I wanted to be able to make sure that that was something that uh, I could be a part of. And since then, we've grown from, you know, one day of 30 people, you know, in one office building to this large three-day event at NIH. It's been been pretty exciting. So NIH is the National Institute of Health. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So uh, back to, or how long has the EPA been on Drupal? If, if it's Drupal 7, it's been a, at least a couple of years. I believe it was about five years ago that it started the process and it took several years to get everything moved over because even then the EPA public site was not only on one environment. So every program office and region and sometimes sub offices were all kind of running their own thing. So it was not just a technical let's, you know, move to Drupal. It was let's bring everybody together into a single system at the same time. So I bet that wasn't uh, political at all, right? There were some challenges. <laughs> yeah. I know like forcing or, or asking people to, to switch platforms can be a, can be kind of a, a, a big, sure. Even, a, big even a company the size of Lullabot, like changing your chat messaging software <laughs> is a big deal. So your, your yeah. whole website is probably a big deal too. There was a lot to it, but you know, we had a lot of folks still on static HTML. So it was a real uh, improvement for a lot of folks. Yeah. That's a so big one. Uh, people who had gotten, a little bit more advanced and done a little bit more uh, for those folks. I think it was a little bit harder, but you know, it, not just technically, it also helped with, you know, a more uh, defined content strategy and, and the messaging of the agency being consistent. So there were a lot of non-technical wins that I think people have since realized too. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And things like that kind of bring, uh, you know, the benefit of Drupal as far as standardization of the content types and the content strategy and things is very valuable. Darren, you uh, brought 80-some sites from Georgia state government together. Um, did you see any of that uh, working with all these different sub-organizations and standardizing everybody and the challenges that might have come with that? It's an interesting question. I think in the, in the course of time that I was working with Georgia, one of the things we found was that um, state governments, and I would assume even at the federal level, this is probably true as well, there's different governance models for how the websites – in a in a large organization are being managed. And so, for example, the, the state of Massachusetts has a mandate that everybody has to be on their Drupal platform. And so every agency is, is all in the same, I believe it's a single Drupal instance and getting to know the folks from, uh, from mass.org 
you know, sort of was really instructive over at Georgia. They don't have that kind of a mandate. And so their agency, Digital Services Georgia, really works on um, sort of the goodwill and the offerings that they can they can provide to people. We sort of say, you know, they have it's all carrot, no stick. Um, they don't have any any way to force people to to behave in a certain way or to adopt the platform or whatever. Um, so the politics of of that, you know, of course, are really different, you know, depending upon that governance model. But largely, it was a very smooth um, rollout. From a technical standpoint, and you know, Digital Services Georgia worked really, really hard, um, and the team deserves you know all the credit for uh, being able to take the process of like engaging all those agencies for you know the seventy or eighty sites that they they launched, and um, you know, working them through a process of content audits and um, trying to fit all the content that like the driver safety group versus the um, human services or you know Department of Revenue, whoever it might be all into um, the various content types and making the content model that we had come up with in Drupal 8 really work for them. Um, so it was a long process and, uh, and an intense one in that the migration had to happen, uh, you know, in, in like sort of short order. You know, we had this, this treadmill that we were on of migrating sites and then giving them to Digital Services Georgia to go demo them for their, for their respective agencies and uh, making adjustments and then eventually moving to, to launch. We had like these pretty tight time windows to do all of that. So um, it was very exciting indeed, but we did it as of, uh, as of January, we launched all the sites and uh, I believe their, their homepage for Georgia.gov is going to launch um, in the next couple of months. So, yeah. Very good. Gotcha. And the homepage for Georgia.gov has a, has like a beta URL. Is that correct? Yeah. Pilot.Georgia.gov is where it's at now, but the, the full rollover, which is going to take them all the way off of Drupal 7 uh, is still, still coming up soon. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, Nika, you do a, yeah. a bunch of government work at the federal level. Um, can you tell me maybe what requirements might exist for a, a you know, a, a government project, a federal project? What, what are the specific challenges to, to government work? Um, so, um, I work across many different agencies managing. So I do see a lot of different challenges that they work with. Like one of the main ones that I see is like, actually finding the talent to actually implement and sustain some of these Drupal websites that have been built. Um, so we work with them closely to kind of find the talent and then um, properly place them in these agencies so that they can continue to develop and maintain those sites. Maintenance is always a challenge. doesn't matter what website you are. That's, that's the less fun job, but certainly more most important, I think. Yes. And also um, managing their content, by the way, compliance is another big um, and important item when you deal with government websites. Uh, you have to ensure that not only people who can read um, and see, that others can kind of take in and consume the content on, that exists on these websites. These websites should be access accessible to all. No, uh, Section 508, that's that's part of the American Disabilities Act. Is that Am I remembering that properly? Yes, it is. And if you want to run back, we have a couple of Lullabot podcasts where we go into some pretty great accessibility topics, right, Mike? That's That's been like, I don't know, a couple dozen ago, but you can look back in the archives. They're there, I promise, and they're good. And also just, um, just understanding that when you write to the um, cit four citizens that you're content should be clear and easy to understand, which includes like your user interface, like so clear, concise UI UX, so that users can find what they need. Um, oftentimes when people go to government sites, they're looking for particular items. So a lot of our clients want, um, are having issues, you know, a lot of the older sites that they work with, the UI isn't that clear. So, you know, we come in and provide like a clear user UI, um, interfaces. And that could involve uh, a lot of different ways from usability testing to get that information you need to provide that clear, concise UI UX. How long have you been doing government websites? Uh, and, and did you move over from from doing, you know, non govy websites? And, and as a, as a uh, further qu question on top of when you're talking about like non govies do you refer to them as muggles? 
<laughs> I've never heard of muggle. <laughs> Muggles. It's a Harry Potter term. <laughs> I, I think we can, say, we can say commercial, right? That would be a good way to to phrase that. Say we gubbies are people too. I was like, <laughs> gubbies are people too. I, I think Mike was trying to say you were magic people though, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all right then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're wizards. So I've been in the government space for probably 10 years. Um, before, I actually, um, in a prior life, I actually was a COBOL developer for eight years. Um, so the best blessing was that they fired me and then it enabled me to kind of delve into the realm of web development, uh, where I worked at like um, agencies, um, marketing agencies, um, but then I just decided to take an opportunity with a government consulting firm probably five, um, eight years ago. And I have continued down that path working with government agencies to um, give them and provide like good websites, clear and concise websites um, for the government. Cool. How long have how long have you been involved with Drupal for Gov? So I about five years ago, yeah. I started um, with one of the companies that I work for. I gave a presentation at Drupal at the GovCon, and uh, I began talking to others because it's a great networking event. And I got pulled in deeper, where I started doing trainings on Drupal development and how to set it up. And then I got in deeper uh, and then I got involved in the code sprint and code contribution and then res more responsibility with um, working with the volunteers, onboarding them because uh, for the Drupal GovCon, it is 100% run by volunteers. So, um, and, and now I'm a co-organizer with uh, Jess. It's a labor of love. Yes, it is. <laughs> I really salute uh, both of you for organizing. Organizing is, is a lot of work. And, I, you know, just from the one time that I've been at Drupal GovCon, it was an enormous event. It was wonderful. It was huge. It was, it was obviously very well run. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Have, have you attended, Darren? Yeah, I was at the last two years. And I spoke... Uh, this last July when I was there. And uh, yeah, it's a fantastic work, fantastically well-organized, an amazing, amazing event. So for the listeners, if you haven't been, it's totally worth the trip. So if you do government websites in Drupal, you should definitely show up this July. But, but the topics are not necessarily government related. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's called GovCon just so the, so the government uh, workers can better sell it to their bosses. Am I completely off base on that? No, you are absolutely correct. It is amazing how simply throwing the word government into the name of a training or event increases your odds of getting approval to go. So that is, <laughs> and that's, that kind of goes back to why we say, you know, govies are people too. There's a lot of the same information that we need that you need because we do similar work. But then there are little nuances, security-based things or, you know, uh, other specific things that are unique to government. And we make sure we cover those. But it is by no means a government-only event. You can be in nonprofit or commercial industry and still get a lot out of the conference. Yeah, the topics seem to just be kind of very normalish Drupal camp, DrupalCon topics. You know, lots of front-end development, back-end development, and everything in between. That's what we shoot for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the course of, of sort of looking at GovCon the last couple of years as an, as an attendee and then as a speaker that it is mostly, yeah, it's like any other, you know, great Drupal camp and that you're going to be talking about whatever's new in Drupal and, you know, there's going to be technical topics and stuff. I think the places where um, it does get a little bit unique is that, you know, the private sector doesn't have the same, uh, like they don't have a requirement to do accessibility or they don't have a requirement to deal with, with certain kinds of, uh, you know, like Nico was describing, you know, there are some distinctives about these government sites and higher ed and government sort of share that same uh, same set of demands. Like, you know, you have to make your websites accessible. Everybody should do that, even in the private sector. But um, so you're going to get good um, good content around those distinctives as well. But it really is a, a just a great general purpose Drupal event, too. 
And, and we try to um, have a right away, a, a, ride, a wide array of um, topics from like community to content strategy, to DevOps performance and security, to site building. Um, so we try to have everything, um, something for everyone and even project management. So everyone's okay. way getting something. I think also kind of what makes us unique is our session selection team also tries to make sure we get speakers from government, right? So even though the topics that they may be discussing may be relevant to everybody, there might be some nuances about having dealt with that specific issue in government that they can address. And so we do provide an opportunity for government community where even if it's not always in, in the session, it might translate to boss where people can get together who work in government and sort of share strategies for success. And, and one of the things that I'm really excited about is the um, code contribution, um, where we actually, um, and it's not even more, it's, it's more than contributing. It's allowing people to kind of learn Drupal in a space that's kind of safe, um, where you can learn how to um, code contribute and, you know, setting up, understanding the basics and get. And so um, that is a, actually um, one of the uh, areas of the Drupal GovCon that um, I enjoy running. And I would say one of my favorite things too is the training that we're able to offer to be able to have one full day where we have, you know, four or five different training sessions as well as training throughout the event especially for government folks, to even just get approval to spend $500 to go to a class. There are some people who say it's the level of effort to do the paperwork just isn't there, so they don't do it. And so this is just a great opportunity where we allow attendees to, to come in and get access to that training through the generous offerings of our training sponsors. It, it's just a real value add that I think people who don't work in government may not realize. It's, it's To us, it's a lot more than just saving our agency $500. It's saving hours and hours of work to process paperwork to get approval to go in the first place. Yeah, free. So I don't know if we yep. mentioned that, but it's free. So thank you, sponsors. So how did... Uh, how do government or federal, I guess really any type of government, what organizations make the decision to choose Drupal? Like, like in your, has there been evaluations? Do they look at other other federal websites and say, well, you're using Drupal, I'll do Drupal. Um, is it like some fancy, you know, salesperson from Acquia or something coming in selling them on it? Or how exactly does that work? I think it happens a number of ways. I think government agencies do their research. Um, they often, before they even decide to um, release a bid for work, they do research in the form of requests for information where they kind of put their feelers out and you know, provide a problem and ask the community for a solution. And so based upon that, and also they see what other people are are using within the government. A lot of other government agencies are using Drupal. Um, so they see the benefit of it. So who, who I guess, maybe what this comes back to, well, well, who on the call was at DrupalCon San Francisco? Yeah, so I was at, I was at San Francisco. Anyone else? No. Nope. Okay, that, that goes back not. to April 20, 2010. I've, I've Googled it. I've looked it up, so I'm cheating. All right. I was trying to remember exactly what it, what it was. And yeah, we, there was one of the keynotes was... Uh, a person from the new media team at the White House. They were mm -hmm. talking about the the newly released whitehouse.gov. One thing I've heard since then is that I mean it was probably a couple of years since you know after that was you know ever since White House rolled out their website on Drupal it was one of those things that nobody gets fired for choosing Drupal anymore. Um, which I think is great for Drupal and I think Drupal has really kind of evolved from that point and really makes a good tool for, for government websites. So it's a good fit. And there's kind of the history there, maybe. Is that is that kind of what gets people going in that direction? I would say there's kind of a history, but, you know, it was also kind of, you know, Drupal at that point, you know, that was Drupal 6. Drupal at that point was in a really good place to take over for these websites, you know. And I, I think, you know, when, when whitehouse.gov 
uh, ended up choosing it, it was it was a logical choice. And and also, just in was case you though? don't know, was it? I think Drupal yeah. was a fairly scrappy open source project. I mean, there were lots of big sites going in that direction at that point, but I think the tide turned. With yeah, that it could be. It was. It, was de- it definitely didn't hurt things. Agreed. Um, and, yeah, and and if if you're not aware, you, you know, uh, Whitehouse.gov is no longer on. Drupal. Yep. Yeah, Whitehouse.gov. For those that don't know, it's on it's on WordPress. But uh, you know, it's kind of my understanding that they also kind of simplified the content architecture and and don't have as much you know features on the website. But I was gonna say when the White House went to Drupal, I can say that uh, definitely in conversations I had with other federal agencies about choices, the fact that the White House went was definitely a big part of the consideration in that it opened the doors for, hey, this is, if it's, if it's good enough for the White House, more importantly, if it's secure enough for the White House, yeah. then it absolutely yeah. should be secure for us. So security is a big part of it. And, you know, sometimes selling open source and open source as being secure can sometimes be a challenge in government. And so I think, when the White House went that route and then also started, you know, touting the use of open source, that kind of created a shift and you saw a lot of people move in that direction. Yeah, and the White House uh, uh, team for a while was contributing back to Drupal, which was pretty amazing. Is there sharing among government organizations um, who might be solving the same problem within Drupal? We are trying. I would say that it does not come naturally necessarily. Some of it really is reaching out. I say when I first got started with Drupal, the fact that there were people out there in this community who knew how to do stuff and that they were willing to not only tell me about it, but hold my hand, show me how, give me code and not charge me anything for it was a real, uh, a real unique experience, you know? And so certainly uh, what I am finding is, especially those who have been in the Drupal community for a while, we all kind of realize how abnormal almost it is in government to be able to have this type of sharing. And But I've seen it really change a lot in the last couple of years. But it's one of those things for folks that as they come into it, I've had to really encourage, say, no, embrace this community, talk to people, ask people. Everybody wants to see this product get better. And um, approaching, even in my own projects, I sort of approach things with some of the contract support I have is we don't write a single line of custom code without confirming that there's not something out there in the community that already solves the problem or, hey, maybe it solves 85% and we can tr- contribute back to that module to get it across the finish line. Like, let's take that attitude first rather than, oh, let's just develop something custom that works for us. And that's a real shift, I think, in thought process. Mm-hmm. I agree. But you definitely have to have those champions in that agency, you know, who understand the value of the community that is Drupal and want to get involved in um, contributing back. I have one client who actually believes in that. So it's actually a good, I think it's a good feeling to have that. Is it difficult to get government organizations to contribute back open source code? I think it is. Um, are, are there restrictions in place or just a, a, a culture that causes that problem? It may, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. may be the culture, um, but just wrapping your brain around the, the Drupal architecture and understanding the um, how the community works and getting involved in the community, even as a non-government person, it can be difficult. Um, So uh, I think along with the barriers that come with government, um, being a government government employee, just the barrier of contributing back can be like a big learning curve. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jess. No, I think that's definitely true. And I think some of it also is just an educational component of understanding what you're authorized to do, you know, and that it's something that is okay. And educating not even if you yourself understand why it's legal and not not only uh, a good thing to do, but the right thing to do, selling your management tier on why it's okay that this is completely open source, that I can share my code base with not only other federal agencies, but just people in general. So some, sometimes it's simply an educational component of people understanding what the law actually is, what we're allowed to do. And 
how it can still be safe to do it. Are, are there restrictions in place, like, uh, just for you at the EPA? Does the EPA say this is what's okay and what's not okay? Or are there federal mandates that say this is not okay? Like, I, I, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so there is actually, believe it or not, there's an OMB, Office of Management and Budget, mandate um, that says that all federal agencies have to make their custom-developed code available for government-wide reuse, right? That's kind of what it says you have to do. Um, What's missing sometimes is how. How do I do that? What's the best way to do that? What are the security implications for the systems that I use that code for? That's where it starts to get more, more complicated. So you're starting to see more public code repositories for federal agencies, but it's still a learning curve. Is, um, well, I guess within Drupal, how do you define what custom code is? Is, is your theme custom code? Is, I mean, I, I would guess a custom module would be custom code. <laughs> like you could draw well, that line a lot of different places. It, right? It's one that, that it is a very, it's very gray, right? And so figuring that out is sometimes difficult. I would say essentially anything that you write yourself default to me falls under the umbrella of custom developed. Uh, now, if I write a, uh, if I, I don't know, write a patch that gets contributed back to a community module. Yes. That then that I don't have to release that separately. It's, it's rolled into that contrib module. But if I was to write a custom module to perform a specific thing in theory, I would argue that I should be making that available. How and the intricacies of it get a little bit more complicated. That's part of why I think the adoption is still somewhat slow as people figure out what exactly do we mean by custom? How much of it has to go? How does it get released? For things in Drupal, custom modules, I don't know, themes, that's a little, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, can, I, I would argue that, you know, themes are very, very tailored to their content types and, you know, the particular website that, that they're built on, at least in, you know, within Drupal. And is, is YAML custom code? No. <laughs> no, because you didn't write it, it's generated. <laughs> Okay, so CSS isn't, but SAS is. Um, I'm sure. having too much fun. We're on the Lullabot Podcast. <laughs> We're talking Drupal and government with a couple of folks from Drupal for Gov and a Lullabot project manager who's done some Drupal government work. Coming up right after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about security. It was mentioned a little bit, but we'll de- delve into it and the things that need to go into security when running a government website. And also a few other uh, fun questions dealing with government work coming up right after this. Hey, it's Avi from Midcamp. How are you doing, Avi? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Pretty good. So, hey, I hear you have a conference coming up. We do. It's uh, it's Midcamp in Chicago, March 18th through the 21st. I remember some, I don't know, almost 10 years ago when we were in Chicago in March and they dyed the river green. They do. It's super amazing. Um, (laughs) The Saturday before our camp, um, they dyed the river green. uh, St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. It's a it's a huge festival. Um, There's going to be parades. There's going to be the river dying. Um, We're going to work on organizing some trips to to get people out for that if they come in early. Um, Nice. Our our, our tagline this year is... uh, Come for the river dying and stay for the community. <laughs> That'll be fun. So what are you what are you expecting at, at the camp? Wednesday the 18th, um, we've got uh, paid trainings and uh, a couple summits. Thursday, Friday, we've got a lot of great sessions um, that are all picked and accepted and up on the website. Uh, and then Saturday is, um, is our contribution day. We've got some socials going on too. We've got a game night on Thursday that are, that's always super fun. So it should be a great time. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on and telling us about it. What's your website again? The website is midcamp.org. Um, we've got ticket info up there, sponsor information, um, and all of the sessions and details. So come on down. Welcome back to the Lullabot Podcast. We're talking about Drupal and government. I've got a couple of quick questions, Mike. The first to Jess and, and Nika. Um, when I hear the phrase "close enough for government work," does that apply? Well, no. <laughs> okay, I want to say no. I, I didn't think it was fair, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, are are there sacrifices we have to make sometimes because we have to get, we just have to call it sometimes? Yes, but I like to think that our standards are just as high as those in the private industry. Sometimes higher, 
Uh, and it's just project by project based calls, right? <laughs> sure. Um, so as far as like getting stuff done, is there a bunch of red tape when working at the federal level? There can be. Um, there are different processes put it, that are put in place. Um, and I think the time that you wait and implement um, function, um, projects is maybe slower. Um, so, yeah, there are some things. Okay. Now, I've heard stories before where, you know, someone wants to install a module and they get pushed back from management saying, well, you know, what are the security implications of this module? You know, can you go ahead and write up a document saying this, that, and the other? Is it to that level or can I just go ahead and install, I don't know, WebForm or whatever other module I want? I think it varies from agency to agency. I think you okay. have some who are more flexible in a, than others. Gotcha. And even within each age, even within each agency. So it all depends on, on who you work for <laughs> and how they feel about it and how much they know and understand. I've worked on projects where I can install modules. That's fine. Um, but yet to use the exact same technology uh, for a different project, we have to go through a process of getting an ATT an author authorization to test. And then on top of that, an authorization to operate and all of what is involved in in making that happen. So it's not always consistent. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, Jess. <laughs> so much. So much. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, you mentioned security. So uh, websites, we don't want them to be hacked. So, uh, and, and I think that's probably one of the reason that, reasons that people, that government uh, agencies tend to use Drupal because Drupal has a, typically a pretty good security record. Yes. Um, and so it comes on many different levels, whether it's like um, access and providing secure passwords to the server level um, where you have SSL authentication and other items at that level to ensure that you aren't hacked. Um, and so a lot of some of the agencies that I have, they run monthly scans and uh, you have to address uh, at a certain level, at least the mediums and ups to ensure that that server and that web application remains running. No. Yeah, it's a whole stack. It's not just Drupal. Yes, absolutely. Jess, I think we mentioned earlier that, you know, whitehouse.gov was a big target, but I'm sure, you know, the EPA, there might be sh people shaking their fist at the EPA as well. So <laughs> security is something that... Uh, I, I would... <laughs> I would argue that there are people shaking their fist at pretty much any agency that you can think of at any given time for any variety of reasons. You know, sure. it's, it's one of the great things about America. Everybody has their, you know, their own individual thoughts and opinions about things and they, they feel them strongly. So and half of them uh, are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Half of them are wrong at any given time. Right. So yes, yeah, security is a real issue, you know, and I think even, even some of those uh, agency or topical-based sites that we don't think of being, you know, at risk, um, they are. They, they are. So while we kind of, you know, groan sometimes about having to get through those security, uh, you know, gates, they, they are important. And it is, it is something that it is a real risk factor that we really have to consider. I've seen, um, at, um, especially in our current climate, I've seen them blocking IPs from, you know, certain you know, where they see requests coming into the server from a specific mm -hmm. country, I see them blocking IPs or asking us to block those IPs. So it's becoming even more important. I can see that, you know, there's a lot of those, a lot of botnets, you know, yeah. that will try to take your website offline and things like that. Um, Darren, on georgia.gov, I'm, I'm sure there was uh, maybe a number of security requirements as, as you're migrating those sites. Yeah, so we had, as we've been saying, the, the you know, Drupal itself is a is a layer cake of of different implementations, as well as existing in an infrastructure context that has different layers. Uh, you know, we're primarily focused on you know the code that we're writing and and the modules that we're choosing. Um, so when we built out the the GovHub platform for Georgia, we instituted some things right out of the box, like. Uh, you know, code standards that were automated and, you know, checking our code as we were 
you know, committing it into the repository um, and refusing to let us check it in if it was mm-hmm. the we were using or insecure. Or Automated and somewhat annoying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Matt knows about this. Um, but that, you know, would would give us an initial amount of coverage right at the moment that we're writing our own code or, or picking modules. Um, and in the same way, we had, uh, you know, Drupal modules like SecKit and, and you know, various kinds of password modules that would help us to, um, you know, secure them at the level of, like at the policy level within Drupal, what kind of passwords can you set, um, things like that. Um, and then above and beyond that, we went through and had a, um, a code audit from another uh, partner agency from Palantir, uh, who also works with Georgia. And so they came in and, and looked at everything we did and, you know, thankfully gave us a clean bill of health and, and all that good stuff. But uh, it's really important, you know, at the level of the code, the custom code that goes into a site. And uh, they also had to, you know, they had to pick choices about, you know, what hosting they were going to have. They, they're hosted on Acquia, uh, largely because Acquia had the kinds of certifications that allowed uh, them to feel safe about, um, you know, the hosting platform. There may be other Drupal hosts that private sector folks can work with who don't have those certifications or ratings uh, and therefore are um, you know, not really a choice for a government site. So all of that stuff uh, was, was part of the project. Sure, even our workflow, Darren. Um, like if I write code, somebody else is going to have to read that, review it, and approve it before I can uh, merge that into... Yep. Yeah. That's definitely a, a team thing that we had a large enough team on on the Georgia project that for sure we were, we were looking at each other's code all the time before we ever got to the QA process. How large was that team? Um, so we had, I would say four or five backend developers in the, in the hottest part of the project as we were, we were pushing towards the biggest set of features for the MVP. Um, that was through the fall of, of 2018 and into, you know, spring of 2019. Um, and we probably had three or four front-end developers. We had some rotation in and out. Um, so, but at any given time, it was probably eight developers plus there, there had been architects and content strategists and myself as a, um, as a project manager all throughout, you know, all of that. And then, um, of course, the Digital Services Georgia team that was partnered with us uh, had lots of folks that were working on content and agency, you know, interacting with all of them to, to get ready to, to move their sites over. Um, plus technical and testing and all kinds of other stuff. So the total number of faces we would see on any given call might have been uh, as high as 20 some days, but the, the core development team is probably closer to 10. One other thing I thought of, Darren, is our, our extensive test battery is actually a security measure as well to ensure that your code is doing what you think it's doing. Absolutely, right. Yeah, and so we wrote, you know, writing automated tests around any custom code that goes into a Drupal site is, is super important. It's also super frustrating because you spend a lot of time writing and maintaining tests that that mostly don't yield a bug, don't tell you that anything's wrong. So it feels like you're spending more time and more money um, maintaining the test suites than maybe they're giving back, except when it does catch something, uh, which it did for us on the Georgia project a couple of times, uh, the tests would fire and we would see that there was an error and we saved ourselves downtime or... Uh, some embarrassing bug that was a cross-pollination from one implementation to another. Um, so there is value in them, but it's a, it's always a, a balancing act. I, I, and I did not, for the record, say something positive about that test suite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, you know, in all of this stuff, security and, you know, even stuff down to like accessibility, you know, we, we wanted to be sure that we were covered well with um our automated testing and, you know, tools like Google Lighthouse, things like that, that would let us uh, give ourselves a score and make sure that we were doing well over time. So Georgia has continued to, to build out, you know, automated regression testing and, and, and stuff like that so that as builds go out over time and as we continue to add features to the site that we're uh, really the platform, I should say, that we're, um, we're well covered. But that's the, that's the kind of thing that you would ideally do on a private sector site. This kind of comes back to, you know, close enough for government working whether that saying is really fair. Um, I feel like the standards were much higher on, um, on Georgia than they were on many other private sector sites that I've worked on, you know, and up in the private sector, you can choose to ignore um, accessibility or, or other aspects of, of security or things like that, which you would do at your own risk at the risk of a lawsuit or whatever else. But, uh, because those mandates around security and accessibility and other kinds of things in, in government are 
are there, you know, you, you actually have to do all the right things. And uh, hopefully, you know, you add to that the best kind, the best practices that, um, that Nikita was referring to before in terms of clarity for like the way that you write for the web, because a lot of the folks that are coming to these government websites are, I shouldn't say, I should say it this way. These websites in the, in the government at the state and the federal level are serving everybody, like everybody. Um, and that means people that didn't finish high school. That means people that have disabilities. It means the elderly. And so you, you really do have to write content at, um, at a level that, anybody could read and you need to provide a UI that anybody can use. And uh, it's really, really important, you know, because people are getting like services that their life depends on, or their their livelihood depends on um, from these websites. So it's a really big deal to do it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, earlier you mentioned hosting um, and that there were some certifications or ratings or something like that. do you know, can you expand on that? Uh, like was Lullabot involved with the decision-making process of the, of the selection of the host? Um, do you know what ratings are available and you know how, how that factors in? That was actually a decision that Georgia had made prior to me joining the project. Like they okay. had looked at various hosts and looked at security. I feel like maybe I could throw that to Jess or Nika and they might actually know the the, the kinds of requirements that, that make up a, a government hosting platform that will actually pass muster. Um, I would say that some, you know, the biggest thing is FedRAMP. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. So, right. So FedRAMP is essentially yeah. um, a standardized approach to security. And so organizations, hosting companies that have been FedRAMPed, right, uh, most there are a lot of federal agencies, at least federally, I can say, that will say, "Hey, if it's Fed ramped, then we'll pursue. If it's not, don't even talk to us." Um, and you know, in addition, so so at least I think Acquia may be the only cloud-based hosting provider that has the Fed ramp certification. Now, others can get it through third party. That for, I don't know all of the specifics, but there's ways that you can still provide a Fed ramped service even if you specifically aren't FedRAMP. Um, but I'm not a security expert, so I don't want to you know, claim any of that. But you know, then we have cloud.gov, which is another uh, environment that agencies can, can use to look to, to move to cloud hosting. But uh, the, all of the security stuff that's kind of outlined in, through FedRAMP is really the starting point for, for most folks. So that's FedRAMP, F-E-D-R-A-M-P? Yes. Cool. And AWS I- also... Um, as a platform that's FedRAMP compliant. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, I believe at the time that I started working on the Georgia project, Acqui was the only Drupal host that was FedRAMP compliant, but um, I believe Pantheon was working toward it at that time. And a quick web search shows me that their data centers are FedRAMP certified at Pantheon. So that may be another um another option, but of course your mileage may vary, do your homework, all that good stuff. Yeah. I would encourage our listeners to kind of, you know, do their own homework. We don't want to yeah. say that one provider does Darren have it. said it. Like that's <laughs> no, the, the, the scuttlebutt at the time was like, we'd like to be able to consider more, op, more options with hosting, but Aqua is the one that's definitely certified as just mentioned. Um, but Pantheon was making noises like they were headed in that direction. So it might be. Okay. If they're, if they're good. Yeah. So let's talk about procurement. Um, I, I, I heard that uh, it's it's a little bit different for an agency maybe to get to get a government business. Is uh, Nika, you work at an agency that that works with a lot of federal government or federal agencies. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, it, I think it's all about building relationships. Um, so, you know, we have a number of contracts and so we, and we try to make sure that we do well on the projects that we have and, and organically grow business from within those. Um, and also uh, networking is really important um, because the process to win work within the government is a lot different and lengthy. Um, and you have to respond to RFPs and price accordingly. So there are a lot of things that go into um, winning work for uh, within a government agency. It takes a lot of uh, knowing who you wanna work for, investigating who are the key players 
and networking effectively. And if you're already in that organization and you're trying to get more work, it's important that you continue to do a good job and organically grow your work within that. And I'm sure the RFP will have all sorts of uh, things outlined that, you know, the requirements for the agency who could fulfill this. And it, like Mike Herschel Designs probably wouldn't necessarily be okay to, to, to do the work. <laughs> I, I have pretty, uh, that's actually a pretty good design company. Yeah, um, so, so our government, our government agencies mandated to post RFPs online. Do they have requirements that uh, like, like I've seen things before where uh, like federal agencies require that, you know, so all workers are based in the USA. Is, is that common? Is that a thing? It is a thing. Uh, um, we have some agencies where we can't hire if you aren't a United States citizen. Um, but, you know, for then I talk to the other side of that. You know, there are also um, opportunities for small agencies, you know, for the federal government. They mm. have programs um, put in place for small business organizations that are primarily set aside, um, work that's set aside specifically for small businesses um, to nurture that um, small business growth. Um, I, I just think the work to go after that, it takes, you know, you have to fill out a lot of paperwork, which I'm really not privy to, but um, once you get over that hurdle, I think the benefits are good. Gotcha. Darren, were you involved in the RFP process for Georgia.gov? And, and I was. And yeah. I don't know a ton about it at the federal level, but I do know that there is um, an approved vendor kind of, uh, and maybe Jess knows about this. I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to her in a second. But for Georgia, we had um, uh, a request for like a qualified vendor, basically, that we had to go through. And it was a very lengthy process. Um, and once we had reached that, uh, that's like status with them. Like they did that before they did anything that was actually a, a bid for real work. They just wanted to, uh, to make sure. And that was part of the state process to go through and say uh, what kind of vendors are reputable and have been around long enough and are, you know, have a track record of work and have all the skill sets that we need, all those kinds of things. So having cleared that hurdle, then they issued a, um, or a request for, you know, an RFP or whatever they had, to, it was an RFQ, I think a request for quote for um, uh, the work that ended up being the the new GovHub platform. And so they actually put out three of them. There was a design and a content strategy and uh, development RFQs that were all uh, put out to their various approved vendors. And we won the content strategy and development sides of those. Um, and there was another design shop that picked up the, the design side. So we, um, we had to go through all that stuff, and it was a ton of work. <laughs> uh, the good news was, and uh, and I can I can say this without qualification, it was the best written RFP I've ever seen. In that they knew exactly what they wanted, they had done all their research, they had they knew their audiences, and they had all the supporting documentation that we could have ever wanted in order to be able to respond well to it. And this is as uh, as opposed to like lots of other RFPs where they sort of like list out a set of bullet points and say, we want a website and you know, it's going to be a high dollar figure project, but you don't have anything to go on. <laughs> um, so it, the epitome of, you know, marrying before you date basically. Uh, but this was very much not that. So all this preparation and all the, all the, the homework that Nika was mentioning that, that folks do um, research they do before uh, they open up these RFQs for the public to, to respond to uh, can make it. So it's, really a rewarding project because you really know what you're getting into and you know what kind of partner you're going to be working with ahead of time. Yeah. Um, gotcha. So they listed out all the requirements within the RFP of the website. So yeah, we really when what we were getting into. Yeah. Yeah. So we could accurately give them a dollar figure as opposed to just shooting in the dark. Which doesn't yeah. but, happen a lot. You were lucky. Yeah. But no, we definitely were lucky, but, but that's, that's why digital services, Georgia is one of the state agencies to watch. I think they just got voted that on Twitter someplace. Some agencies said you need to watch these the state agencies because they they blog and they talk about best practices. They're, if it's on Twitter, it's real. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. Um, but Jess, is there is a there is like an approved status of some kind for the federal government that I've heard about, but I don't actually know what it's called. Is, do you know about that? Can you tell us? I don't know specifically status. I do know that 
the process for procurement varies depending on the size of your project and the dollar figure. And depending on what you're trying to do, you can, uh, you know, write a small, shorter sort of statement of work where you ideally can get as specific as you need to. And if the dollar figure is under a certain amount, you can go, you can just get some services uh, from companies that are uh, GSA certified, right? So if they're on the GSA schedule, and they respond back saying that, uh, you know, that they can meet that particular need and a quote that you can, you know, select that way versus some of these, you know, bigger, larger dollar figure contracts that go out through RFIs, RFQs and RFPs. Um, and definitely I have seen some really well-written ones and some yeah. ones where you're like, I'm, I'm not even sure I know what you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's, uh, and, and you can definitely tell I've, I've served on, um, they call them TEPs, technical evaluation panels. They put together where people evaluate all of uh, what comes in against the actual statement of work. And there's very specific rule sets and there's a contracting officer who ensures that the people who are on the panel are making decisions based only on what was written uh, and what was requested. And you can't, take anything else into consideration. So there's a very specific legal process, you know, that we go through. And so even if you're serving on that panel and maybe you know that particular company that put a bid on and you'd really like to be able to select them because you know that they're going to give you what you need, if they haven't responded to the RFP in the way that they're required to or in a very specific way, you, you can't take that other stuff into consideration. So sure. it's yeah. a unique process. That actually happens uh to us at the state level with, with Georgia, where, you know, once we had submitted our bids, they, they brought us, they didn't brought us, we went to them, I should say, because um, that's a rule too. Uh, but Lullabot went out and met with them and they, they did this, I think, with all the vendors, that, as far as I know, that uh, they sat down with us and said, okay, we have questions about your proposal. And there was a procurement person in the room, which is unusual for private sector. Um, kinds of situations that procurement person, you know, had to be at every conversation that we had with them. And as you say, the, the proposal is the, the measure of what, um, what they were making the decision on. So they asked us to amend certain things uh, because in our conversation with them, with procurement present, we were able to articulate what it was actually the, the solution we were planning to deliver, et cetera. This is great. If you can put that into the proposal, then we'll be able to um, review it again. And so that was definitely part of the process and all, all those conversations until the point in time where the ink is on the paper had to be, you know, overseen uh, so that, you know, the state funds that are going to be putting out there are um, known to be like legally procured, you know, so it's an important thing. Yeah. And that safeguards people from giving jobs to their buddies. That's my understanding, yeah. right? Yeah. Tax dollars or, or you got to be careful with that. Because, so. you know, politicians have the uh, reputation of being honest. So I don't, that right. wouldn't, yeah, that wouldn't why, do have, why do we have all this regulation anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, maintenance. Jess, um, from the EPA's perspective or from your perspective inside the EPA, I suppose, uh, one thing that Nika brought up was finding people to, work on these sites after they're after they're going has that been a challenge finding drupal knowledge inside to work inside the epa i, I would say so i you know i think it depends on your agency so in some cases you have federal employees that you know will work across different agencies one of the things that i have found is unique about the epa is that a lot of the people that work in the epa have only worked for the epa uh, because they believe so strongly in the mission of the agency, that's what they're most concerned about, and that's why they're there. And the work that they do is based off of the mission, as opposed. So you have people who have been uh, around for a long time, which is is great for institutional knowledge, but doesn't always allow for um, sort of newer experiences, right? So what we what I find as a challenge within the agency is um, we don't have a lot of technical feds, right? So we have uh, great project managers and we have strong people who understand um, the business strategy. But when it comes to the technical side, we really do lean heavily on contractors for that level of support. And so you have to make sure that when you're developing products uh, such as Drupal sites, that you think forward far enough about when you stretch into that operations and maintenance phase of, all right, so the contractor built all of this for us, but who's going to help us with security updates and module updates and future releases and enhancements? That's mostly contractual. And because it's contractual, 
all of that procurement stuff we just talked about comes into play. So uh, being able to get a couple of good feds who stick around and understand the technology can be really, really helpful. And But that, I think, is across government kind of where you face that challenge is you'll have one or two, uh, not teams like you might have in uh, you know commercial industry. Um, so inside of the government, what other types of technologies outside of Drupal are being used? What have you run into? Oh, my goodness. Everything. <laughs> I mean, sometimes what happens, you know, is you have the vendors that are really, really good at, uh, you know, displaying and showing off their product. And you get the right people in front of that. And that's how you see adoption. You see groundswells for things. When I started at uh, the EPA in, in late 2009, we were still running Lotus Notes. If you, re- if you can even remember what that is. <laughs> Lotus right? so, email? Uh, is that the email software? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was, but it's also, it's also had, uh, it was also an application development platform and had, you know, web front end to Lotus Notes applications as well. So huh. uh, you see anything and everything because oftentimes what happens, and it goes back to that procurement process, is we don't necessarily pick the technology. We say we need a solution and the contractor, the vendor provides the technical solution. So unless you specifically say, you know, you need to limit your solutions to these particular technologies. You, that's, I think, how you see all of these different types of technologies across government because it's based off of how that procurement was written and what that particular vendor brought forward. I, I, do, I do notice that, but I also notice that when you have an agency, they, they'll stick to a certain stack, right? So it'll either be that lamp, lamp stack or the um, Microsoft um, stack um, where they may um, have pulled in other technologies. And Nika, you're uh, talking about an agency, meaning a, a government agency, not a not yes, a services I agency. Am. Okay. And I've seen CMSs from WordPress to .NET Nuke. Um, so I've I've seen a lot in uh, with a lot of the clients that we work with. I haven't thought about .NET Nuke in a long time. <laughs> we, oh, it's around. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah it's, it's it's still around. It is so around. Mm-hmm. Are, are you guys familiar with Fitara? Have you heard that term before? I have it's not. It's the uh, Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. It was passed in, I think, uh, late 2014. But okay. it essentially established, um, it overhauled the process by which uh, federal government would procure IT, right? And so it forces an evaluation of hey, what other technology stacks is the agency using if it's different than what we already have? Why? It, it, and that's a real oversimplification, but there is a dollar threshold that any procurement for IT services over a certain dollar threshold has to go through what we call a FITARA review. And it, it helps. I mean, I think, yes, it's another layer, but I think it does help an agency who, especially an agency that might have a distributed budget, really ensure that we're not duplicating efforts that one program office isn't building a solution that another program office already has. Um, and so that that's yet another layer <laughs> of, of bureaucracy and legality. Uh, but I think in, the, in that particular one has a good, it's a, it's a good effort, <laughs> that FATARA process. So that's part of it too. When you talk, talk about picking your technology. Nika, do you have any final thoughts as we point towards wrapping this up? Anything we might've missed? Uh, no, not that I can think of. It was a good discussion. Do, do you enjoy working in government stuff or is that just where you ended up? Um, probably <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah. I do. Well, that's I fair. Enjoy, yes, I enjoy my clients. Um, but sometimes you can get caught up in uh, a lot of the mundane waiting. and. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be kind of fun to, like Jess was talking, you know, get get behind uh, an agency that you, that you care about. I mean, yes, absolutely. I find that working at a commercial agency when I'm when I'm with a client that that I that I really, you know, align with their mission. It's it it feels good for me. Yeah, and I think that's um, why I continue to work um, within the government space is because of the clients that I do work with. Um, we have some wonderful clients who um, allow us to work with technologies and make those tech, they trust us to make the technical decision. So that's a good thing. Jess, any final thoughts for you? Um, I would say, you know, kind of spinning off on your question, Tanika, about, you know, working in the federal space, I think 
it has its challenges, certainly. But I think I like to think that uh, I, I take my role as a federal employee seriously in that it's important to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars in that everything that we do is being paid for by the American people. And so if we can, in even a small way, reduce, you know, duplication of effort, reduce paying for the same functionality, even just once, then I've saved some taxpayers of which I am one, (laughs) right? Um, Some money and and helping to to build efficiency in government. I, I see certainly, especially with the way technology has taken off in the last 10 years, really strong improvements in government and I re- even though it may not happen as quickly as we see maybe in private industry, I do think the government is is moving forward and working in the right direction. And it's, it's exciting to be a part of that. Well, as a citizen with a pile of receipts upstairs that I need to figure out in the next month, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, do you have any final thoughts? Are, are Mike and I going to fly to D.C. and start doing a bunch of this stuff or what's going on? Is, well, there, is there something I you want to like tell it, me? Um... <laughs> I I totally agree with what Jess and Nika were saying. When you have a client who trusts you, you know, whether it's government or not, that's super rewarding. And when that client's doing something for people, that's important. That's super rewarding. And uh, having spent you know eighteen months or, or more now uh, submerged in in the state of Georgia's like delivery of services to their to their citizens. Um, it's a great feeling to know that I'm helping somebody figure out how, you know, more easily how to, to get to their services that they need, whether it's food stamps or business licenses or whatever else. So that feels really, really different than, you know, building an ad supported website, um, you know, that is going to, I don't know, show TV shows or whatever else we, you know, we might have a, a client ask us to do. Not that there's anything wrong with that either. Not that there is because <laughs> entertainment's a thing too, but you know, making sure that people have what they need for their life is kind of a big deal. So, um, yeah, I think it's, um, uh, it's a great space to have had the chance to work in and I'm hoping to do more of it. Yeah. That was actually something that hit me, Darren, was I heard Eaton talking about the, the Georgia Dugov project probably a year and a half ago and he was getting excited. He was, he was one thing he said that really kind of hit home was like, if this website doesn't work, literally people don't eat. Yes. Because it was providing a service that was important for food stamps or, or yeah, other support. Yeah. And that, that really kind of hit home the, the, the message of, of what we were trying to do. And that yeah. that's good. So all those best practices that we talk about really, really matter in that context. And I, um, yeah, I'm really proud to have had the chance to work in that. What do you think of government stuff, Mike? Seems uh, kind of daunting. You know, it, it, it definitely seems a lot, but... Um, yeah, I agree. It's it's important. You know, it's it's one of the most important, you know, pieces of work that you could be doing. Well, thank you, Nika, Jess, and Darren. We appreciate you yes. coming on. Yes, yes, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, I will I will hope to see you at uh, Drupal GovCon. Yes, I hope so. Yes. Yeah. And we always look for volunteers, so I'll just plug that in there. If you want to be a part of Drupal GovCon, there are lots of ways that people can participate. So. And how would they get in touch with you? (laughs) For now, I would say the easiest thing is uh, to shoot us an email at the uh, Drupal, the number four, gov at gmail.com. We'll get you Mm -hmm. on our list. And as we start to get closer to the event, um, we can start getting you plugged in. Yes.